Good morning. Uh, Take your Bibles this morning and turn to Nehemiah chapter 1. Nehemiah chapter 1. And uh, we're going to begin a new sermon series this morning. It's a good, uh, if you're a first-time guest with us today, it's a good day to be here. We're starting a new series uh, in the book of Nehemiah. If you are uh, kind of trying to remember where that is at, you know, go to book of Job or Psalms, hang a left. It's right before the book of Esther. Hey, use your table of contents. Don't be ashamed. That's what it's there for. All right, so we are uh, in the book of Nehemiah over the next several weeks, and uh, some of you may be wondering, you know, why are we going to study this book? It's definitely not uh, usually a heavily trafficked area in a lot of our Bibles, but man, it is a fascinating story. It's got a lot to teach us about uh, the promises and plans that God has for His people in the world, plans to protect us, plans to preserve us, plans to renew us, plans to restore us in order that He can use us in His kingdom work to advance the gospel on the earth. God wants to use our lives. God wants to continue restoring your life. God wants to continue building you up. What our job is as followers of God is to place our hands continuously into the hands of of God as moldable, shapeable uh, clay with a kind of God, take me, use me, shape me, uh, renew me, restore me, build me up, kind of surrendered attitude, right? So we, we like uh, to restore and to build things, right? We're, or we, if you're not, you, you maybe like to watch other people do it, like you like TV shows about uh, restored health or TV shows about houses getting renovated and rebuilt and restored, and some of you even like to tackle some of those types of things. Uh, you like to utilize the wonderful world of YouTube to, to do your own projects and to fix things and to build things up. All right, so from a young age, there's really something you can see even in kids, you know, a desire to, to create, develop, and to build, right? That's why most all of our kids went through their Lego phase. Some haven't gotten out of it. Some of your big kids that still love to use Legos. All my kids uh, love, loved Legos. My seven-year-old is right now just in kind of that land of Legos. Under his bed is this giant bin of about 65%, where about 65% of the bazillion Lego pieces that he owns dwell. The rest of them are in exile around the rest of our house, right? In, ca- in couch cushions, under furniture. Uh, every once in a while, if you hear the vacuum cleaner running for a couple minutes, you're going to hear something rattle, uh, plastic into that thing, and it's going to be a Lego piece. Sometimes those Lego pieces find the bottom of my bare feet in the middle of the night. That ever happened to you? Is there a pain much worse than that right there, all right? Got to rededicate my life to the Lord every few weeks when I step on a Lego in my house. But he will sit in his room, and he'll play with those Legos and build something up over here and tear something down over here and rebuild it back up. Uh, And you may have outgrown Legos, but there's still something that's inside of us that likes to build, that likes to create that likes to restore, even if it's you thinking about it, hence some of your wives who keep dropping hints about uh, how they're thinking about that bathroom remodel getting done or, you know, that, that room remodel getting done, right? We, we're people who get good at that kind of stuff, all right? We're, we're good at restoring. Some of you are good at restoring cars. Some of you are good at restoring furniture. Some of you are good at remodeling a room. Some of you, have, some of you in this room have the ability to even build a home. Some of you can build a whole meal, which just boggles my mind, build a whole meal from scratch, right? But there's one thing, no matter how hard we try, none of us are good at rebuilding and restoring. And you know what that is? It's ourselves. It's our inner man. It's our heart. We continuously need God to work on us. We're all works 
in progress. We continuously need the power of God's Spirit to shape us. We need Him to continue building us. We just got to learn to put our life on the work table, as it were, and let Him work. To let Him work in our lives so He can build us up to be the Christ-conforming, kingdom-advancing, fruit-spirit-producing, fruit-of-the-spirit-producing, truth-proclaiming, God-loving, people-loving, disciples that he's called us to be in this world and i believe that this little book right here about this little story about an everyday guy named nehemiah who helped rebuild the city walls of jerusalem can help build us up to be just that because see what we're going to discover as we walk through this book that is that this book is about much more than a wall restoration it's a it's a story about a greater builder a god who wants to rebuild and comfort and to restore our lives his people All right, so with that in mind, stand with your Bibles open. I'll begin to read in verse 1, and we'll read through the first 11 verses here in chapter 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hekeliah, now it happened in the months of Kislev in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanini, yes, sounds like Panini, one of my brothers came with certain men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and I wept and I mourned for days and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, oh, Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servants, Moses. Your servant, Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are faithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to the servant today, to your servant today, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was a cupbearer to the king. Would you have a seat as I pray? Father, we are thankful that a story so, so old, 2,500 years old, can be so relevant to us sitting right here in this room today, Lord. Your word is, is living, it's active, we know that. The grass withers, as your word says, and the flower fades, but your word, O oh God, will stand forever. It has stood long before any of us were. It will stand long after any of us leave this earth if you tarry on your second coming, Father. So I pray that this morning we would put our lives under it. I pray, Lord, that you would use it to mold us and to shape us and to build us up into the disciples you're calling us to be. Lord, I pray that you would use this little story to help us understand the grander story of the Bible. And Lord, I pray that uh, we would all be encouraged to leave this place, uh, to live a life more devoted to you today. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, in verse 1, we're introduced to a guy named Nehemiah, who up to this point, we don't know a whole lot about, all right? We haven't heard anything about Nehemiah up to this point in the Old Testament. You don't hear anything about Nehemiah after 
you read the book of Nehemiah. Who is this guy? Well, let's try to learn a little bit from, usually you can learn a little bit from the opening statements of a book like this. We learn something pretty quick here that he's the son of Hecali. Maybe we can learn a lot about Nehemiah, knowing that his dad's Hecaliah. Well, what do we know about Hecaliah? Well, he's the father of Nehemiah. That's all that we know. That doesn't help that much. Uh, But we do learn a little bit more as we read through this passage and study it. And we learned a little bit there at the end of this passage, in the very last verse, and that it says, Nehemiah is the cupbearer to the king. That's King Artaxerxes. He's a Persian king. So here you have Nehemiah, and we also know he's a Jew. It's pretty clear there. So here's the question. Why is an Israelite living in Persia as a cupbearer to this Persian king? And this is a good time for us to hit pause and for us to scroll back uh, several pages in God's Word, all the way back to Genesis chapter 12, all right? So I need you to buckle up. We're going to experience a little bit of Bible history in the fast lane, all right? So Genesis chapter 12, we meet this man named Abram. Later, his name is changed to Abraham. God comes to him and says, I'm going to have a special covenant relationship with your family, and through your descendants, all the nations of the world will be blessed. He's also promised this land where his descendants will live and prosper as a powerful nation on the earth. And so Abraham has a son who has a son who has 12 sons, and they become the heads of 12 tribes of the nation of Israel, God's covenant people in the Old Testament. Now fast forward from that moment, a thousand years forward from Abraham, and his little family has grown and prospered into a geopolitical nation, a united monarchy. They have a king, they have a capital city. Their first three kings is King Saul, King David, and then King David's son, King Solomon. And those were the golden years in Israel's history. But under Solomon, that third king, the reign, under his reign, things begin to go awry. Started out really good. He was probably the wisest of all of the kings, the wisest man to ever live, the Bible tells us. And yet along the way, his heart drifts from God. Along the way, he gets into idolatry. And because of that, and because of the sin of the people as well, uh, their unfaithfulness, God divides the nation into two. You got Israel in the north. You got Judah in the south, still one covenant people, but separated into two nations. Each had their own capital city. Each had their own king. Most of the kings that they had along the way led them spiritually more and more astray, disregarding along the way God's warning that if they kept turning from God into the idols of this world, God would eventually evict them from the land that he promised them, and they would be judged. And in 722 BC, that's exactly what happens. Israel in the north gets attacked by the Assyrians. They're the ruling power of the day. They take the people there into captive of the northern kingdom. Uh, Judah in the south, they kind of hang on for another 136 years until 586 B.C. when Babylon, who was kind of the new big kingdom power on the block, mowing all the other nations down under the rule of King Nebuchadnezzar, comes in and they attack the southern kingdom. And they level the city. They destroy the walls. They tear everything down, burn it to the ground. And the southern tribes are taken off into uh, exile in Jeremiah. As Jeremiah prophesied, that's where they uh, are in captivity for the next 70 years. Now, after 70 years in Babylonian captivity, another empire comes along and takes over, the Babylonians. This is the Persian Empire. All right, and the Israelites, who were the captives of the Babylonians, now become the captives of the Persians. Now, life as a captive under Persian rule was a little bit better than Babylonian rule. They were pretty brutal. All right, the Persians, they were more pluralistic. They, uh, they let people, you know, 
live within their own culture a little bit more, the captive, the nation captives that, that were under their rule. Uh, they kind of used that as a way to create peace, right? To keep the captives happy, give them a little bit of what they want, right? They're less likely to revolt. And something that the Israelites really wanted, what did they want most? To go back home. They wanted to go back home to the promised land. They wanted to go back home to Israel, the land of promise. And the Bible tells us that God stirs in the heart of Cyrus, the great king of Persia, and he agrees to send the exiled people of God back to Jerusalem to rebuild their city and to rebuild their temple. Now, they're going to go back in three waves, all right? So they're sent back from exile in three big waves. The first two waves are recorded in the book of Ezra. So in Hebrew manuscripts, most, all the time, you're going to see Ezra and Nehemiah together as one long story. All right? They go together. All right? So Nehemiah is kind of a prequel, uh, sequel to, to Ezra. All right? So uh, Nehemiah, or I'm sorry, uh, Ezra records the first two waves of the Israelites returning from exile. The first wave happens under a guy named Zerubbabel in 538 B.C., and they return and rebuild the temple in 516 B.C. And then Ezra also records his own efforts to lead another group in the second wave back to Israel as well under his leadership. Fun fact, in between the first and second wave, the story of Esther happens, all right? An incredible story about, kind of like Nehemiah, another unlikely person in a Persian palace who God uses to do great things for his glory. But Ezra leads the second wave of people back to Israel. Ezra's focus is more on the spiritual renewal of God's people. He's helping uh, God's people refocus on God and God's word. And now we come back to verse 1 of chapter 1 of Nehemiah. All right, 13 years have passed since that second wave of people returning back to Israel under Ezra's leadership. The year is 445 B.C., all right, and so here we are back in Persia. King Cyrus has died. A couple other kings have come and gone. Now the current king is King Artaxerxes. And here we find an Israelite named Nehemiah, this ordinary cupbearer. And this whole book is going to tell the story about how he leads the third wave of Israelites back to the promised land to rebuild the wall. You can unbuckle your seatbelt and take a breather. All right. We just went from Abraham to Nehemiah in about seven and a half minutes. And that's going to be some really important background and context for you to understand as we move forward in this study. Now, there's still some questions about Nehemiah here. All right, again, what do we know about him? He's an Israelite. We know he wrote this book. We know that it's in first person. We see that in the first few lines, the words of Nehemiah. And he's a cupbearer to the king. Now, what is that? Essentially, a cupbearer in ancient times was like a professional taste tester for the king. You'd eat some of the king's food. You'd drink some of the king's drink to make sure it wasn't poisoned. That was a common way for kings to get assassinated in those days. And so you needed a Nehemiah to eat a little bit of your bologna sandwich and to wait a few minutes to see if he keeled over, at, the, at which point you would not eat that bologna sandwich. If he's all right, then you're going to dig in and enjoy your lunch. So you need you a Nehemiah. So he had a cupbearer. His name was Nehemiah. Not a terrible job, right? You think about it. You live in a really nice place. You get a lot of free, really good meals. You get to eat what the king eats. You get to drink what the king drinks. It's not a bad gig as long as you don't get poisoned, right? Um, and historians tell us that uh, cupbearers, uh, you may not know this, were not treated like typical you know, servant-classed people. Right? They would actually be very trusted along the way. They'd build a relationship with the king. They were trusted by the king. They'd have a lot of influence in the king's cabinet. But still, I don't think it's uh, just an incidental detail that that label, that, that title, their cupbearer, is here. 
I think we should think about that for a moment. Just think about that. Nehemiah has a book written about him in God's Word, canonized. He's a man that's going to be used by God in a certain place, in a certain time in history, to accomplish incredible things for the glory of God. But this is an everyday guy. This is not a priest. He's not a prophet. He doesn't hold a religious office or position. He's a regular guy working a regular secular job. Well, not regularly. He's a royal job. But it's a secular job for a pagan boss. Son of Hecaliah, the cupbearer. That's all we know about him. Which seems to be telling us something about the qualifications that you need to be used by God concerning the, the pedigree, the background, the education that you need. What are the qualifications this morning for your life to be used by God for His glory? You know what they are? Whatever. God isn't picky. You say, well, I'm nothing special. Are you saved? Yes. Are you in Christ? Yes. But I don't feel like I got a whole uh, lot more to offer. That's okay, right? God, God has a flair for the dramatic. And He likes to take the small and do great things for His glory. Right? And so let this encourage you this morning. He glories to work through an ordinary cupbearer, ordinary people to accomplish His Purposes. Well, let's see what happens. In verses 1 through 3, we find out that this is the month of Kislev. That means it's November, December. It's the winter time of year. It's the 20th year of Artaxerxes' reign. They're in Susa, the citadel. This is the king's winter palace. And Nehemiah's brother, Hanini, comes into town. And they're catching up about it, things going on back in Israel. So it's, how are things going? So again, Hanini's come from Israel, he's traveled all this way to visit him in Persia, to visit Nehemiah, and they're catching up. How are things back at home? Nehemiah's asking, how's grandma? How's mom? And how's the wall? And he can see it on his face, and his face drops, and he says, not good. The walls are down, and the gates are burned with fire. And this is devastating news for Nehemiah to hear. He's rocked by this in such a way that he's going to feel compelled to take some great risks to go do something about it, to make sure this wall gets rebuilt. And maybe you're wondering, like, what's the big deal with the walls? All right, so you're telling me this entire book is chronicling the rebuilding of these walls in ancient Jerusalem, right? Are they that important? Do we need to spend all of this fall in 2022 studying about this project? Yes, and here's why. Of course, for some obvious reasons, these walls are important, right? Remember the first wave? Israelites come back. They rebuild the temple. The city's coming back to life, right? Without walls in an army posted on those walls, the city's vulnerable to attack. So they needed walls to protect the people of God in the city of God. But I need you to lean in right here, and I need you to see a deeper, more significant redemptive reason as to why these walls are significant and why they need to be built. I need you to see how this little story, and you see this all through Scripture. We want to make sure you understand that God's Word is full of these little stories that are all part of a big grand narrative in Scripture, of a big story. And it's the case with this story right here. These walls don't just get built up to keep the people of God safe. That's an incomplete sentence. These walls need to get into place to protect God's people because somebody special is coming from God's people. Someone important is coming through the nation of Israel, through this people, and this is namely the Messiah, the Son of God, Jesus Christ. So in this book, 500 years before Christ comes, you see God sovereignly arranging human history to bring back these exiles, to bring back the temple, and then to raise up this wall to protect the city in order to preserve this city for the most important moment in all of human history. 
So this wall is important. 500 years after this wall is going to be built, this wall is going to have protected and preserved Jewish life within Jerusalem so that Jesus can grow up a Jew. It will have protected that temple in Jerusalem so that Jesus can go there with his family to make sacrifices that the nation won't need, that the world won't need anymore as Jesus is going to offer himself up as the ultimate sacrifice for our sin. It'll be within the walls of the city of Jerusalem, a city that'll be protected, or it'll be in the city of Jerusalem, a city that'll be protected by these walls that Jesus will be tried and crucified and buried and he'll rise again. It's here that he'll commission his disciples to go into all the world to make disciples of all nations to advance his kingdom, fulfilling the promise he made Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. So you say, are these walls important? Yeah, they're important. And we're going to study how God used a guy named Nehemiah to get this done. You say, how did he get it done? How did God rebuild these walls? He taps an ordinary dude named Nehemiah. Think about that. He uses an everyday guy to help shape, literally shape the course of human history and prepare for the coming of the Messiah. And I want you to know that as we walk through the study, remember this, that the same guy desires to use your life in such a way that will actually shape eternity. Did you know God wants to use your life at that level? Let that sink in. Like, I pray that excites you. I pray that, 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 that fires you up, that God wants to use your life that, to, to shape eternity. I hope you have a desire for your life to be used that way. And if you do, man, this, this story is going to be a gift to you over the next several weeks. And it'll help guide you to understand what it looks like to live a life surrendered to God in such a way that your life, along with others who are seeking to do the same, can literally help to shape Eternity. And the first thing we learn about from Nehemiah's life that we need to do right here, and it's at the beginning of this book, and, it, and his life helps us remember right here an essential part or something essential that needs to be in place in our life that will help us live a life that shapes eternity. And it's this, because before he takes action, before he, he runs off to do a strategy meeting as to how he's going to get all this done, what, is he, what do we see him do? He's on his face, humbly before God in prayer. And this will be the theme throughout all of Nehemiah. He's communing with God. He knows, like Jesus told his disciples in John 15, 5, that apart from Christ we can do nothing. He's a man whose life is used to shape eternity and to shape human history because he was a man of prayer. Now, I'm not aware that I just used a bunch of time this morning to go over a lot of background and context. But I still have a little message I'm going to preach this morning. I'm going to spend our last few minutes giving what I'm going to call a flash five-point mini-message on prayer. All right? So buckle up again. I want you to see five things about this ordinary cupbearer's heart that positioned him to experience a power of prayer in his life that led him to be used for God, for God's glory. First, I want you to see a burdened heart. First thing we learn about Nehemiah is he has a burdened heart. He has a heart that's grabbed by a real meaningful burden. Look at verse 4. As soon as I heard these words, what words? The words that the walls are down and the gates are burned. As soon as, he says, as soon as I heard these words, I wept and mourned for days. He hears the news that these, these walls are in ruins and he's moved by it. He's broken by it. He says he weeps over this news. He has a sincere burden over the state of God's people, the brokenness there. Now keep in mind, 
you know, him reacting this way is nothing small. Especially when you think about how easy it could have been for him to be apathetic or indifferent towards it. Think about where he's at. He's a cupbearer of a king. Again, not a bad gig as long as things don't get poisoned. Nehemiah's living in a palace. He's eating whatever the king eats. Whatever the king drinks, he drinks. Life is actually going pretty well. And he's in a place to where Hanini could have come in his brother and said, hey, things are terrible over here. The wall's falling down. And he could be like, man, that's really, that sounds really bad, man. I, I'm going to put you guys on my prayer list. I'm going to really be praying for you guys. And I'm kind of over here. They're over there. You know, what can I do? I know what I can do. I'll just, I'll just pray for you guys. No? He doesn't do that. As easy as it could have been for him to turn back to his filet mignon and, and his drinking out of his royal goblet and keep the problems of Israel out of sight and out of mind, that was not an option for him. He doesn't do that. He lets the news hit his heart and he's burdened over a need. All right? So, real quick, if you're really thinking about this and if you're really tracked with me through the history, you're probably going, wait a second, something doesn't make sense. He's this torn up about a gate that's been down for like, isn't it like 140 years? Isn't that when you said Babylon went through there and destroyed the gate and destroyed the walls? Right? That, that can't be, that's kind of weird if he's weeping. That's like me standing before you today and going, guys, the Titanic sank. And I just start weeping uncontrollably. Right? That would be odd. Right? I'm not saying that's not, un, I'm not saying that's unimportant. I'm just saying it's not new news. And so as you really begin to study, what, this seems to, what seems to be happening here is when you read Ezra 4, uh, you begin to understand that it seems like recently a, a reconstruction project had started. And it was actually King Artaxerxes, pagan king, who halted it for some different you know, political reasons, halted that. And then some enemies of surrounding Israel came in and they halted the project. They came in and just burned it all to the ground and destroyed what they had built up. And so this seems to be the news, fresh news, that he's responding to. And it hits him hard. And you know what hits him hard? It's not because the aesthetics look off. It's embarrassing that our, our fence and our, our wall looks like this. It, it's, there's, it's something about the glory of God that bothers him. These walls being down makes his God look weak, and he knows his God's not weak. It's shameful. He's had enough. He's, he's ready to act. And what... Nehemiah shows us right here, he's an example of what it looks like to not be numb to the brokenness and the needs that surround us in, in the world that we live in as believers. Is it not easy to grow numb to the needs around us? I can do it all the time. I mean, you just survey humanity this morning and you realize there are whole people groups. There are whole nations right now that have very limited access to, if some of them access at all, to the gospel. We've got neighbors and colleagues and fellow students who don't know Jesus. We live in a, a city, in a community. We're surrounded by thousands and thousands of homes that are fatherless homes. We're surrounded by people in this community right here every day walking our streets who have deep needs. And it's easy to look at them and say, man, that stinks. That's bad. I'll pray for you and turn to our proverbial steak and our royal drinks and move on with our life and not do anything about it. Nehemiah shows us that cannot be an option as a believer. We can't do that. We have work to do. There's needs that need to be met. we got a dark world that somebody's got to run into and shine gospel light and point people to the hope of Jesus Christ. That is why we are here. And we got all kinds of excuses. Sometimes it's apathy. Sometimes it's laziness. 
Sometimes it's just flat out disobedience, man. Sometimes this is what I get tired of my, the way I think, and I'm kind of tired of hearing other people talk this way to where people sit around. And it's like we just curse the darkness all the time. Talking about how bad things are in the world. Talking about how the world, man, all this world, man, is in bad shape, man, going to hell in a handbasket. What kind of world are we leaving our grandkids? And people talk like you're tempted to kind of back into some kind of bomb shelter and wait around for Armageddon and completely pull back from the world with our copies of Left Behind and wait for Jesus to come back. We look for Jesus to come back. We look forward to Jesus coming back. That's biblical. But you also want to know what's biblical? Is as you wait for Christ to come back to get your hands dirty. To meet needs. Nehemiah gets his hands dirty. His heart is burdened by needs around him. He's ready to go into the world, not of the world, but to shine the light of of the gospel to the broken in the world. We're surrounded by needs that should burden us. People who need to be saved. Kids who need to be adopted. Addicts in our community who are living in bondage to substances, who need somebody to come alongside of them and tell them that Jesus loves them and there's a well that they can draw from that can satisfy the depths of their soul. And we have the answer for that. We have the gospel. We're carriers of it and we got to get to work. But before we run and get to work, you feel that? Are you with me this morning? There's needs around us. We got to do something. But before we put on our steel-toed boots, before we put on our hard hats like Nehemiah's going to do here in a little bit, let's do what he does. He doesn't just run out and get to work. What does he do? He does something very, very important here. He gets on his knees and he prays. And we see him praying in some specific ways right here. Number two, he, he, he prays with a worshipful heart. He experiences this burden. He goes into a time of prayer. But notice he doesn't just rush into lists. He doesn't just tell God all the things that he's going to need, treating God like a cosmic vending machine. A7, give me what I need. Here's my request. Give me, give me, give me, give me. What does he do? He comes to God with a heart of worship in his prayer life. He comes in, in awe. He comes adoring the God of heaven. Look at the title that he uses for God there. Oh, Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God. Nehemiah has this big view of God, this transcendent view of God. He knows God is big. He knows God is holy. He knows God is other. And and, and as he's approaching God in prayer, he's essentially saying, God, I know Israel has a big problem, but I just need to stop and recognize that you're bigger than any of our problems. And I'm recognizing that you are powerful and that you are great and that you are holy and that you are worthy and that you are marvelous. And I want to worship you because those things are true. And as I do that, I need my heart to be reminded of those things. I got a burden, but I don't just want to rush into your presence with my list and my agenda. This is about you. And I'm going to take time to worship you. So as we come to God, we come in prayer with a worshipful heart. Number two, the second thing we notice that he, uh, the state of his heart is he comes to God in prayer with a contrite heart. Number two, a contrite heart. Verses 6 and 7 shows us that he comes before God confessing sins. Nehemiah knows his Bible well, right? He's familiar with verses like Proverbs 28, 13 that says, Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will will obtain mercy. So Nehemiah knows if there's going to be any prosperity in this endeavor about what burdens his heart, this rebuild, if God's going to use him in his life to change human history and to shape eternity, Nehemiah knows that, hey, I've got to start with getting my heart clean. I've got to start with confession. I need to do business with God. And so he humbles himself before God. 
a holy God that he's been worshiping, and he confesses his sin. Now, what's interesting is he confesses his personal sin, but he also confesses other people's sin. Isn't that interesting? He confesses on the behalf of other people. He could have easily been like, man, I've got some sin in my life, and also, you know, it is sad that, and just thrown all his ancestors under the bus. It is sad that them back there, when I wasn't even alive, couldn't get their stuff right, and that's why they had to get evicted from the promised land. You know what he does? He throws himself under the bus with them. He models for us a kind of contrite, humble heart that we ought to come before the Lord with. What does this look like for us? What this may look like is for us, as we look around at how the Lord is not worshipped as he should be around us in the world. As we look around at how over the last 50 years, more people haven't heard the gospel as they should have. As we look around and, and realize that there, there's, there's more gospel restoration that could have been done even right here in our city in the last 25 years. As we look around and we see a lack of passion for the glory of God, Nehemiah shows us we have something to own there. That we're all guilty. That we've all contributed to the problem. That I, me, I'm in the middle of it with everybody else. God forgive us. We need a contrite heart before the Lord to be used by the Lord. Something that you find always in a disciple of Christ who is moving, who is on mission, who's burdened about kingdom things, who's passionate about the gospel. I'm telling you, when you see somebody on the move like that, you're always going to see something true about their, their time in their quiet place of prayer is that it is filled with a real time not only of worship but of confessing sin personally and corporately and consistently. Some of you are here this morning and there's a lack of passion in your life. Hit on that a little Wednesday night. Some of us are still kind of trying to get in the groove spiritually from what's happened over these last few years. But a lack of passion for God in your life is almost always directly connected to a lack of confession and repentance in your life. Christian, you cannot make progress hiding your sin. You cannot be built up into the image of Christ hiding your sin. You cannot grow hiding your sin. It's detrimental to what God wants to do in your life as far as building you up. And here's, you say, well, why is that? Let me give you a big reason why. Because when you, when you humble yourself with a contrite heart and you keep your heart clean before the Lord and you commune with Him and you keep that fellowship tight through confession and through repentance, when that happens, there's a, there's a gospel fuel that fills you up that you're, that you're robbing yourself of when you hide your sin. When you don't confess your sin, when you keep it hidden, you're robbing your life of the passion for Jesus and the joy for Jesus and the peace of Jesus and the love of Jesus that rushes into your life in a fresh way when you confess your sins to the one who is faithful and just once again to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. You know what the good news this morning is? I'm talking to believers this morning. There is no sin too great. If you hold on to whatever sin that is and keep it in the dark, that's not God's fault. That's your fault. It's actually kind of dumb because he'll, conf- he'll, he'll forgive you of the sin. Not only will He forgive you, He'll restore you. He'll fill you with the power of His Spirit afresh and give you a passion you didn't have before simply by coming and confessing your sin to Him. So come before Him with a contrite heart. 
And next, we see him with a courageous heart in prayer. Nehemiah, because what he's doing in verses 8 through 10 is he's just firing off promises and specific word, words from God's word from, from Deuteronomy, from passages in Deuteronomy. And Nehemiah is, is a picture here for us of Hebrews 4.16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. He knows with complete confidence that what he's praying and asking God for right here is in accordance with God's will. You know why? Because he's praying God's word. Learn to pray God's word. You want to experience some power in your prayer life? Learn to pray God's word. He's saying, God, you began. Learn to hey, learn and memorize and, and know the promises of God. Pray those in your prayers. He's saying, God, you began the work. You brought the exiles back to Jerusalem. The temple is rebuilt. And now I'm asking you to finish the work that you promised that you would finish. In church, we can pray with similar confidence. As long as it's according to Scripture. If Scripture says it, pray it. Scripture promises it, pray it. This isn't saying right here, like, you can pray with the same level of boldness. God, give me a brand new 4 by 4 jacked-up truck. There's nothing in the Bible that says that that's promised to you, right? That's maybe something you want, but not something you, not a slam dunk on God's will. It doesn't say it. But you know what you can pray for with absolute courage and boldness this morning? And I can pray for my lost friends. I can pray for my lost neighbors. I can pray for my lost family members to come to Christ. Because why? 2 Peter 3 says God is willing that all would come to repentance and to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. That's why I can pray with confidence and courage this morning that God would heal people who are sick in our congregation, in our family of faith, because I know that with 100% certainty that God will bring healing to that person, whether it be on this side of eternity or the next. Nehemiah reminds us of that. He reminds us that if our prayers are rich with the Word of God, which means you need to know it, by the way. If your prayer life suffers, it's often connected to your Bible study suffering. If our prayers are rich with the Word of God, if they're peppered with the promises of God, you can lift up your prayers boldly and expectantly, knowing with confidence that God will answer those prayers in His perfect timing. But Nehemiah's courage here is tempered with this last component that we see in his prayer life. And we see it in verse 11. And I'm going to reread verse 11, and then we're going to close. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of man. The last thing we see in Nehemiah in his place of prayer is a man with a dependent heart. Nehemiah knows that if God doesn't give him the success, that there's not going to be any success. And notice the way he phrases his prayer right there. Do you see that? And give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of man, in the sight of this man. What man is he talking about right there? We don't know who this man is in the first chapter, but spoiler alert, if you get into the second chapter, you realize that it is Artaxerxes. What Nehemiah is going to do, and we're going to see this next week, is he going to, he's going to go with boldness to his pagan boss, King Artaxerxes, and he's going to say, Hey, boss, I know I'm one of your most trusted people. I know you need me every single day to make sure you stay alive, but I need your blessing to go on a one-year mission trip. If you can keep me on payroll, I would really like that too. What do you think? How many of you would that go well with your boss? It's a big ask. 
It's a very unlikely scenario. It's against all odds. But you know what Nehemiah knows? He knows he serves a God who gives zippity doo zero about odds. He serves a God he can depend on. When God has a purpose in the world, he's not looking at the Vegas stat sheets to see if it's plausible. God is God. He does what he wants. God brings about his purposes in spite of the odds. God can rewrite good and happy endings to sad stories in spite of the odds. He can change a human heart, no matter how rebellious and hard that heart is, in spite of the odds. He's going to change this king's heart. If you have a wayward child, a prodigal son, prodigal daughter, a lost spouse, a family member, and you think that them getting saved seems against all odds of good news, is God don't give a flip about your odds. And in chapter 2, we're going to see that God defies the odds. And the grace of God breaks loose over Nehemiah's life. We'll get there next week. But here's what we, we want to get to chapter 2. In life, God, give me to chapter 2. Give me to the good results. Give me to your answers pouring out and your grace pouring out. And all the things that, I, that I'm asking for you to pour out... I, We want to get quickly to chapter 2 and we forget that what we see him doing in chapter 2, the results we see him pouring out there in chapter 2 never happen without chapter 1. What God does in chapter 2 begins in the quiet place of prayer in the life of Nehemiah in chapter 1. It all starts in prayer. And can I just end this morning by encouraging us as a church family? Can I do that? Um... Can we take some cues from this ordinary, faithful cupbearer named Nehemiah? We need to if we want Jesus to shape our life. We need to if we want Jesus to use our life to shape eternity. If we want the Lord to work in and through us in these days, I'm going to propose prayer is essential. Prayer is where it starts. So if you're, taking, if you're not taking notes this morning, look on the screen and you have permission Sometimes we hide our phones, and those are no-no in church. Take them out. Take a picture of that and take it with you if you didn't take notes this morning. Snap a shot of that. And in light of our kids going back to school this week, I'm going to give you a homework assignment, all right? And here's my encouragement. If Nehemiah, who we're going to find out as you get to the time stamp at the beginning of chapter 2, which is probably just to the right of the column of chapter 1 in your Bible, like it is in mine, at the top of chapter 2, you find another season mentioned there, which tells us that you know, it's springtime, and it's been four months that Nehemiah's been on his knees in prayer. Pouring over prayer about this burden, about God to move. And if he spent four months praying, can I, can I just challenge you to spend one week praying? One week praying with intentionality? Could you wake up early every single day this week? Of course, get in the Word. I hope you already do that. But could you get up extra early and spend an additional 10, 15, 20 minutes just praying through this outline, saying, God, what is your burden? Again, every need is not everybody's calling, but God, what is my assignment in this falling world to bring uh, your kingdom stuff about here? Just give him permission. Would Would you put a burden on my heart? Maybe you already have a burden. Maybe it's praying, God, burden my heart with that in a fresh way. And then go to God in a time of worship each morning. 
Praise Him for who He is. God, You are big. You are awesome. You are a big God bigger than any problem that I have. And I just want to praise You. I just want to adore You. You're worthy of all praise. And then confess your sins. Church, this is such a gift that God's given us. The gift of confession. The cleansing process of telling God the worst part about your heart and then feeling immediately God's best towards you. This is a grace that God's given us. A grace that we have in the gospel. Don't bypass that. A single day. A single hour. And then boldly ask Him to help. Boldly ask Him to move. Depend on Him. God, would you work in my life God would you work in this way lift up prayer requests be courageous pray promises pray the word and then again I already said it but depend on him fifth one depend on him God I know that this is against all odds but I'm aligning myself with your word and I'm praying that you would move praise God for the power of prayer praise God that within those city walls 500 years after this happens that Jesus will do a work on the cross that will tear the veil in two and will give us all these years later 2,000 years later access into the presence of a holy God has it been a little while since you stepped into his presence has it been a little while since you stepped into his presence with some intentionality would you do that starting this morning Would you do that this week? And let's see how God uses chapter one of Nehemiah to build us up and to restore us. Let's pray.